Please remain standing and turn with me to Isaiah 51. As we read this Old Testament passage in preparation for the text and from Romans, listen particularly for the interplay of the words righteousness and salvation in this passage. Righteousness and salvation. Isaiah 51, verses 1 through 11. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and the voice of song. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation. For a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, And for my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath. For the heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment. And they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever. And my righteousness will never be dismayed. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man nor be dismayed at their revilings. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Amen. Turn now to Romans chapter 1. We will read verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Amen. You may be seated. If you were to go to our church website, and you clicked on Welcome, I'm New Here, it would take you to a page called uh, Beliefs, uh, parentheses, Who We Are, and this This page is essentially still the same as it was when I got here. 
Um, It's a wonderful statement written by Resurrection's first pastor, Jeremiah Montgomery, explaining what it means, for example, in the front of our bulletin, uh, when you see the phrase, serious Christianity for real life. Um, And it says the first thing it means is that we are serious Christians. It says, we believe that there is a God who made and rules everything. And this God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is both honest and good. He will never lie about our sins, but he did die for them. He will never lie about our sins, but he did die for them. Those of you who have been at resurrection from the beginning, I'm sure will recognize that phrase, one that Pastor Montgomery uses frequently. And I love the way that he puts it. Remember that John 1 says Jesus is the one who came into the world from God, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. Holding those things together, grace and truth, perfectly and powerfully. And there's no greater expression of that coming together of grace and truth, of course, than the cross, right? Because in the crucifixion of Jesus, God tells the truth about our sin, that it merits the penalty of death, just consequence. But it also is the highest demonstration of God's grace, taking that penalty upon himself as the God-man, Jesus Christ. I want to draw your attention today to another pair of ideas that fit together unexpectedly in in very much the same way. Those two ideas are righteousness and salvation. Righteousness and salvation. These are two great themes of the whole book of Romans. And so, fittingly, they are right at the center, heart of these two verses we've just read, which some people have described really as the, the... the thesis statement of the whole book, the whole letter. We're going to consider these verses using three points today. First, God's saving power. Second, God's righteousness revealed. And third, God's righteous salvation enjoyed. So God's saving power, God's righteousness revealed, and God's, saving, uh, God's uh, righteous salvation enjoyed. All right, so first, we'll talk about God's saving power. In these two verses, Paul makes two major claims about the gospel. And the first one is that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. That means that the, the gospel doesn't just <clears throat> tell about God's saving power. It is God's saving power. Let us think about what that means. Um, we use the word gospel, well, that literally means good news, right? It's, that's what gospel means. New, good news, and the particular good news that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has died for our sins and risen from the dead. That is the news, it's the content of the gospel. And Paul is saying that message about Christ's work is God's power to save sinners. That message is God's power. 
In other words, the, the, the mission of Christ, what he did, everything that he did by his saving power to live and to suffer and to rise again for sinners, that mission is being carried forward now into the world through the proclamation of the message of Jesus. The message of Jesus is carrying forward the, that power of the mission of Jesus. In other words, wherever the gospel goes, God's saving power goes. His power to rescue sinners, both from the guilt and from the grip of their sin. That power, Paul speaks of, is a power that is extending also. It's expanding beyond the boundaries of ethnic Israel, expanding to embrace all people groups across the face of the earth, all the nations. Um, It came to the Jew first, of course, he says. It's the power of salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first. Um, You remember something else from John chapter 1, where it says that Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. That's speaking of the people of Israel. But to those who did receive him, what does it say? It says he gave them the right to become children of God. So again, this is going to end up being another big theme in Romans, uh, this relationship between uh, Jews and Gentiles, the expansion of the gospel from the Jews to the Gentiles. Um, In the first three chapters, for example, he's going to go to great lengths to show that Jews and Gentiles are both subject to the same basic sin problem. It's something they share in common. Uh, In chapters 9 through 11, later, he's going to talk quite a bit about the tragedy of mainstream Judaism rejecting Jesus as the Messiah and how the resulting uh, kind of pruning of the covenant tree uh, ends up in God's plan in something good, in the Gentiles being grafted into that covenant tree. As Jesus himself said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. So that there will be one flock, one shepherd. So it's those concentric circles we talked about last time. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, encompassing Rome, and also encompassing State College and Resurrection, right? We talked about this last time. And you can see this same pattern to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You can see this in Paul's missionary approach in the book of Acts. When he goes to a new city, where does he usually go? First. He first goes to the synagogue. And he preaches there. But repeatedly, what happens? By and large, the mainstream, the Jewish uh, leadership, uh, ends up rejecting him, just like they rejected Jesus before him. uh, But there are many Gentiles who start to listen to his message and believe and embrace that message and become part of the newly forming churches around the Mediterranean world. Why? Because the, power, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Okay, all of this explains then why Paul is not ashamed of this message, this news, this gospel that he carries. Implied there, when he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, implied there is a possible objection or kind of suspicion that Paul is anticipating. 
But Paul, you want to you come all the way here to Rome and talk to us. You better have something that's worth our time. Um, are you going to bring us maybe some, some new technology that's going to make our lives easier? Are you going to bring us some new philosophy, some theory of everything that's going to uh, give us a, a breakthrough in understanding the mysteries of the universe? You're going to bring us a, a new medical treatment to solve the disease problem, something to, to, to uh, a new way of, of living longer what, and cheating death. What, what is it? Are you going to bring us something that we want? And Paul says, well, no. Wherever I go, I bring with me a message. I bring with me news. And in fact, from a certain point of view... It's not a very attractive message at all. It's about a man that I'm going to argue is the savior of the world. But one of the most important things that it says about him is that he dies. Yeah, he dies and he he gets arrested and uh, executed as a criminal. So you think about 1 Corinthians chapter 1 where Paul says that that word, that word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It's folly. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is the power of God. It's a message, so much of which is about weakness and suffering and death. And Paul knows that that is not going to sell very well in the ancient Roman world. That is not what the Roman world is in the market for right now, weakness and death. But he says, I'll tell you what this message is. I'm not ashamed of this message. You know why? It's because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes it. And yes, that power is concealed in weakness and shame and defeat and disgrace that happened in the life of Jesus and that's continuing to happen in Paul's own biography as he lifts it out. But see, that's... Precisely the paradox of it all, that it is through those things that God has made the way, the only way, to true honor and power and victory in the end. Through our crucified and risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, Paul goes on to explain something more about what is so special about this message. This news, this message is the power of God for salvation because, he says, for, verse 17, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, at this point, somebody might say, wait a second. I thought the gospel was about the grace of God. I thought that God's righteousness was the problem to be solved. Isn't God's righteousness the reason that sinners are in trouble in the first place? Because a righteous God has to punish sin. That's the problem solved by the gospel. No. Somebody might think, well, I'm not sure how God's righteousness being revealed is, is good news for sinners. Don't you, don't you mean God's mercy is revealed? Don't you mean God's forgiveness? Don't you mean um, God's kind of, kind of God's softer side, maybe? 
And Paul says, no, I meant what I said. I meant in the gospel, God's righteousness is revealed. I think Paul were here to answer those questions. He'd say, you're not wrong. You're not wrong that God's righteousness condemns sin apart from Christ. That is true. They say, what I'm trying to tell you is that God's righteousness is also what guarantees your forgiveness in Christ. It's that same righteousness of God. In fact, that's really the whole point here, that the gospel reveals God's righteousness in harmony, in concert with his salvation. God's righteousness leading the way and achieving that salvation for unrighteous people. Now, that's not a super intuitive idea, right? It seems it's intention, right? But to understand it, to understand why Paul is thinking and speaking in this particular way, I think it really helps if we turn back to our Old Testament reading. So let's go back there to Isaiah 51. Remember, Paul, his imagination, his whole way of thinking about life and the way of speaking about uh, the faith is, is steeped in the Old Testament. He's devoted so much of his life to. And Isaiah 51, just look at the number of times that righteousness and salvation come here side by side, not in contrast, but as ways of explaining each other. Verse 5, my righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out. Verse 6, my salvation will be forever and my righteousness will never be dismayed. And verse 8, but my righteousness will be forever and my salvation to all generations. There's another place in the Old Testament you can see this. I won't make you turn there, but in Psalm 98. Uh, I know we love singing Psalm 98a. Um, but this is the one uh, that says, The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. Again, that Hebrew poetry that puts things in parallel, righteousness and salvation are, are paired up again. So how does this work? If the world is so full of sin and God is infinitely righteous, then how can the coming of this righteous God be good news for a sinful world? How can that be? See, the gospel is precisely the answer to that question. That's what the gospel is all about. And I want to invite you to think more broadly then about the righteousness of God than merely his relationship to sin. You see, God was righteous before there was any sin in the world. He's always been righteous. He is eternally righteous. It's his eternal attribute. God doesn't need sin uh, in order to be righteous by contrast. Righteousness is something eternal, it's something about who he is in himself. So in the word righteousness, you can hear the word right. right? Now for us, that means kind of lining up correctly against something, against a standard, a rule that's outside of ourselves. We're measured against something else to see if we are right, to see if we are righteous. But see, for God, it's not like that. God is unique in this way that he himself is the rule. He is the standard that you compare everything else to. One of the things this means is that God cannot not be righteous. To be righteous is to be, in this sense, is to be God. 
And to be God means partly to be righteous. It is part of who he is. It's an aspect of who he is. It also means, it also means that God will always, when he acts, without fail, he will always do what is right. So what does this have to do with salvation? If God is always going to do what is right, doesn't that mean that he will always punish sin? Yes, but the gospel says it means so much more than that. Not less than that, but more than that. What God's righteousness means is that he will always do what he says. It means if he says he will punish sin, then he will punish sin. But that's not all that God has said he will do. God's righteousness means that he will stand by his word and he will carry it out. It means that if God has promised, if God has promised to make a way for sinners to be rescued from their sin, for sinners to be forgiven of their sins, and guess what? He will do that too, and he will do it righteously, not by setting his righteousness to one side, but in his righteousness he will save them. Why? Not only because his grace demands it, although it does, his mercy, yeah. But it's because his righteousness demands it that he will do it. Not in spite of his righteousness, because of his righteousness. He will carry out everything that he's promised to do to save the world, to save his people, to save sinners. Yes, it is the righteousness of God that condemns our sin, but it is also the righteousness of God that saves us. It is God's righteousness that looks on Christ crucified and says, look, The sin has already been judged. The debt has already been paid. And it would not be just. It would not be righteous for me to judge it again. To demand that it be paid again. God is not going to change his mind later and demand further satisfaction from us. Why? Not only because he is gracious, but because he is righteous. That is good news for the people of God. We're going to see this again in chapter 3, when Paul explains how Jesus' sacrifice as our substitute on the cross was the way that God had planned to show both his righteousness and his forgiving grace at one and the same time. Paul says, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The gospel then reveals God's righteousness in at least these two ways. First, it shows him satisfying the demands of his justice against our sin, but doing that by taking that just punishment on himself, on the cross. In Christ. It's God's righteousness. Punishing sin. Second, it also shows us God doing that. Why? Because he promised. He did it because he promised. He was following through on his covenant commitments. In the gospel then, the righteousness of God is revealed. Finally comes the wonderful conclusion. It is revealed how? From faith for faith. Or some translations say, from faith to faith. I actually like the New International Version when it says, 
by faith from first to last. It's an interpretation. I think it gets faithfully at the meaning of from faith to faith. There's debate about what precisely Paul means here. Is there some kind of progress of faith, one kind of faith to another kind of, maybe in history, like the Jews' faith to the Gentiles' faith, or maybe maybe in the Christian life, uh, faith that grows into greater faith, um, faith at conversion and faith as we go on to live in Christ. And it's, it's kind of hard to choose among those various possibilities because um, they're all true. Uh, and Paul teaches each of those things in other places about faith. And so it's hard to say which one Paul might have had in mind here, maybe more than one. But again, I'm inclined to go with that uh, basic idea, I think, is in Paul's mind here. Faith from beginning to end. Or is the, uh, faith from first to last. The ESV footnote you can see says, beginning and ending in faith. It's all faith. That is how we come to experience God's righteousness in a saving way. And this is what captivated the mind of a man like Martin Luther. As he came to understand that the gospel of the scriptures is not one that teaches us that we must work harder and do more religious things in order to gain the approval of our Heavenly Father to convince him to forgive our sins and to accept us. Rather, that the gospel God offers to sinners is a gospel to be received by faith alone. Faith apart from any works that we can do from Him. I should mention, uh, some people understand the righteousness of God uh, in the previous phrase to mean the righteousness that God gives to us. The way that God declares us righteous in Christ. Um, use the word justification. And uh, it's true God does that, and that's a major theme of Romans chapter 3. Um, although I don't think that's what Paul's getting at in this particular instance when he speaks of the righteousness of God. Um, however, that idea of justification by faith alone is surely in the back of his mind as he reaches the end of this train of thought when he writes from faith to faith and he appeals to the prophet Habakkuk for support. where He says, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. And I'm, I'm so thankful that we just recently uh, went through the, the book of Habakkuk in morning worship, um, that sermon series. And so I hope you have somewhat fresh in your memory the, the context there for this Old Testament quotation where Habakkuk, remember, was wondering, what is, what is God doing here in Judah? The, the evil that was rampant in Judah, God is saying he's going to judge now through the Babylonians, who are even more evil than the people of Judah. And Lord, how can this be? I don't understand. And the Lord calls Habakkuk and all of the faithful in Judah who are still loyal to him. To that, you remember how we talked about that definition of faith as we see it there in Habakkuk, to that patient, trusting expectancy as they were to wait with steady confidence and hope for the promises of God. That's what faith is. It is that patient trusting expectancy as we wait with steady confidence and hope for the promises of God, resting in what he has said he has done for us in Christ and trusting what he's promised to do for us in Christ in the future. See, that, Paul is teaching us here, that is how sinners come to experience the righteousness of God saving us instead of condemning us. Because it is through that kind of faith, it is through that kind of faith that we rest in Christ, that we trust his sacrifice alone to pay for our sins. 
That's how we rest in His righteousness, to cover us personally so that we can stand forgiven and declared righteous in God's sight, not because of anything, anything that we have ever done for Him. Not an ounce of our obedience included in that righteous robe that we're wearing. It's all woven out of what Christ in His righteousness has done for us. Beloved, that is the gospel. And this message, from faith to faith, the righteous shall live by faith, that represents the call of the gospel. See, primarily, as we said earlier, the gospel is news. It's a message about what God has done. But that news, that message, always comes with a call. It always commands a response which is faith. Patient, trusting, expectancy. As we believe that message, and we wait with steady confidence and hope for the promises of God to us in Jesus Christ. The gospel of the death and resurrection of Jesus is the power of God for salvation. That is a gospel that we can believe That is a gospel that we can love. And that is a gospel that we can be unashamed of as we proclaim it with joy to a world that desperately needs this gospel. So let's pray. Our Father and our God, we give you thanks and praise for this glorious gospel of which we are not ashamed because it is your power for salvation to everyone who believes, not only for us, but for the people that you are bringing into our lives who need to hear it through us. Lord, teach us to understand this gospel, to internalize it, to, to get it deep into our souls, the wonder of it, the joy of it, to trust it. Work in us that faith that Paul is speaking of. That we would be so filled with this gospel message that we could not help but speak it every chance you provide. In Jesus' name, amen.